Everybody doing okay? Doing all right? If you have a Bible, you want to open up with me? We're going to teach the scriptures a little bit tonight. Open with me to Philippians chapter 2, if you have a Bible, or fire it on. Um, the last couple of weeks, uh, we've had Dr. David Curry with us. It was fantastic as he kind of landed the plane on our series called Spirit Stuff, as we've been looking at what the Holy Spirit does in and through the church. In a couple weeks, so next week, we don't have a gathering because it's a long weekend. And then in a couple weeks, we have Laura Fest with us for three straight weeks. And it's going to be great as she kind of puts a little mini series together and teaches and leads us in the month of August. Here we are in between. Um, and I've just been kind of wrestling through, here's a one-off moment, and I just want to share a couple things that have been on my heart, especially around church and church hurt and church abuse and spiritual abuse. We're going to talk about becoming a community of goodness. I'm going to do part one tonight, and then at the end of August, I'm going to talk, uh, we'll talk kind of with part two. One of the things that is fascinating in our moment is amongst COVID and the deployments to social media and online has been the exposing of spiritual and all sorts of abuses within the church. And um, it's been very unique being in a world right now of pastor dude, but then as well shifting obviously to bivocational work in therapy. And, and it just seems like what has risen to the top for a lot of folk is discontentment. We've all talked a lot about deconstruction over the last couple of years. And then you have this call as far as what the church is supposed to be, you know, like what the church is actually called to be in and amongst a lot of people's pain. And I want to just kind of talk about this, what the scriptures lead us to. And ultimately, I think the hashtag of this series is embracing a culture that resists abuses of power uh, so that we can promote healing as a community. This is what we want to do. This is what we want to become. And I just noticed that t churches aren't talking a lot about this, but there's also, I think, it's sometimes connected to the systems of power that are play in how we've built our churches. And we're going to talk a little, we're going to get real, if that's all right, as we talk about this. What we need to be reminded, though, is that as the scriptures open in Genesis, if you read Genesis 1, you're a Hebrew reader over and over, you're feeling the rhythm and the cadence that God's creation is good. Here's just one verse. This is how Genesis opens. Remember, Hebrew poetry, they would feel it as they read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that it was good. This word good is actually the Hebrew word tov. Um, and again, you, we don't feel it as much, the rhythm and the poetry because there's a bit of chasm to English but if you were a Hebrew reader, you'd feel it over and over, every verse. God created and it was Good. God created, and it was good, and it was good. And at the very end, it's actually tov tov. It is, all of God's creation, as he looks out and sees it, is very good. Tov tov. And so the cadence, the rhythm, you would feel it in your bones. And, you know, I hope as we talk about this, that we could feel what God is trying to speak and say. But one of the things we don't talk about is the church is actually called to be a community of goodness, of beauty, right? We are actually called, like there's explicit commands in the New Testament for us to walk in the way of love and to practice the way of Jesus together and 
yet here we are in a moment where there's a lot of discontent. There's spiritual abuse in the church. You know, this has culminated, and I'm actually going to say, I've really wrestled through this. I was saying to a friend this week, I've wrestled through this, uh, like actually naming it, but I actually think we're in a moment where we need to. You know, the fall of prominent churches and church leaders, like Mars Hill on the West Coast. Many of you have been probably engaging the, the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill to Willow Creek Community Church, was, which was like the mega church that everybody looked to in the 2000s, especially as leadership culture grew to Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. And many others have just simply, through all sorts of leadership flaws and all sorts of things that happened, have crashed and burned. CEO-type mega pastors have been exposed for their manipulation, their coerciveness, their abuse of power, it's risen to the top. And many of these leaders, um, as you look at a lot of what has happened, you just sense that there are deep, deep abandonment wounds, deep father, for many people, deep father wounds in the way abuse and manipulation has happened. This has led to things on Instagram, Instagram accounts like preachers and sneakers. Anybody? Okay, just maybe, maybe just me. And Prophets and watches that are pointing to the lavish lifestyle of celebrity pastors and leaders. And ultimately, churches and their leaders, people have just been pointing out, have been toxic. So, we've had our scandals over the last year. Even in contemporary culture here in the last couple of years, even since COVID, with Ravi, who was like the greatest apologist, some pointed to him as the greatest apologist of our time, who is you know, caught and embattled in all sorts of abuse scandals. And I know we have children in the room, so I'm going to be cautious and careful. You have guys like Carl Lentz, and I'm a Hillsong kid. Uh, I was there where many of these people were there, who was caught as well in a, a certain scandals, a celebrity scandal, and many things involved with that, to certain abuses in the Catholic Church that we've seen, and now the Southern Baptist Convention with cover-up and lies and cover-up and lies and cover-up and lies. And now, obviously, in Canada, we're living in the wake of the atrocities of our residential school system, which has, if you know, has deep ties to the church. Now you're like, what the heck am I doing? First of all, there's barely anybody here. Everybody's kind of at the beach or staying home. You're like, I came to church on a Sunday night and I'm sure, I'm sure like in preacher school, they tell people like not to start with like the buzzkill. I'm sorry if I've started with the buzzkill today, but I actually, as we talk about healing in the church, I think we need to own it. I've really wrestled through, na- I've been very cautious to like, because na- we could, I could name myself. I, I'm flawed, I'm broken, I've hurt people, and, and I'm sure you have too, but I also think it's important to name it in our moment and name some of the systems we've created in our moment so that we can move forward in health. The church is called to, to be good. We are called to be a community of goodness, and we can do much better than what we've seen and you're like, man, we, uh, I think we've created a fairly, I know I'm biased, we've created a fairly healthy system and structure here at practice, especially now with the whole bivocational thing. Like there's no, nobody clamoring as much for power here, which is beautiful and good. But I also think like, what if we could be a community, even though I think we've set some things in place that are fairly healthy, what if we could collectively own our moment? Then you have Philippians 2. Let's just read it and li- look at what Paul says to the church In Philippi, he says this, verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, 
if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind, in one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, you may read that, especially like in our egalitarian society, where in a sense, we're progressing and it seems like in culture there's a, a typical mindset of common good. Even when you talk about people that don't follow Jesus, I think people, for the most part, want the best for the flourishing of our world and society. To hear this in Philippian society, to, to sit in a house church in Philippi and hear Paul say this to people would have been mind-bending. Because Philippi, okay, and if you're a kid, by the way, we're going to give you a gift card for listening in tonight, okay? So if you can tell Sonia at the end of the night the two cities that we talk about tonight, you'll get a gift card, okay? So you just go tell her and we'll make it okay. But one of the things that is, I mean, if I've read tons about uh, Philippian culture, um, one of the things that comes to the surface is that Philippi was like the most stratified city in the ancient world. One of the reasons is, and I'm a terrible artist, but just for a little visual. Philip, two Ps, right? One L, two Ps. Come on, somebody. I went to Bible college. Um, Philippi was known as a colony of Rome. Basically, basically if you, in that day, you were to walk the streets of Philippi. The thing that Caesar wanted is he wanted to, you to walk around and he wanted you to feel like you were in Rome. Images, sights, sounds, statues. You would walk the city and you would see things. And really what they called Philippi was little Rome. This is what they wanted it to be. And Paul knew this as somebody well-schooled in ancient Roman culture. He knew exactly who he was writing to. It was really a stratified society with all sorts of political things at play. But ultimately the vision for Philippi is it would be little Rome. What's fascinating about the letter of Philippi, though we're kind of parachuting in, we're not reading the whole thing, we're just reading a little snippet, is that one of the things Paul does, it's so beauty, and if you read it in this context, it's amazing, is that it's pretty punk rock. Paul is over and over speaking of the church in light of Roman Philippi, he's now speaking of the church as a representation in the world of the king. So just as, um, just as Philippi is this colony of Rome, the language you get in Paul's writing is that the church is actually, I know colony language is not good in our moment, so I want to be very obviously sensitive to that, but that the church would be a community of the king within the culture it, it lives. This is the picture actually we should get. Just as Caesar used power to, um, to kind of see his will happen and to see these colonies kind of happen around the world, now Jesus is just, and it's not in, in a way that's like Caesar, it's inviting these Christians in to practice a certain way that would be a representation of the king in this society. So we read this, Philippians 2, very well known, like put others before yourself for like, yeah, like I, it's, it's hard, but I think I can do that. And yet, if you were to read this in Philippi, it would have been completely upside down. There was huge, humongous wealth disparity in, in Philippi. Basically, and I, I don't know if you guys can throw it up, but basically this culture was, 
broken into two typical groups. There were the honorable ones, the on, in an honor-shame society, there were the honorable ones, those who were honored, and there were the dishonorable ones. There were the honestories, which were known as the honorable ones, and the humiliories, the ones who were dishonorable. And this is the way culture went. There were actually six categories of honor in Roman society. You had the Senate, which was at the very, very top, 600 ruling men. They were elite and wealthy and they held power and these were the ones at the top. You were striving in this culture to get to the Senate. Then you had the equestrians, which obviously with that language, you can kind of pick up. These were the ones that provided horses for war, but these were wealthy people. Their status was around transportation. Then you also, and those were honorable ones as well. Then you have the decurions, which were honorable people. And they were basically your wealthy middle-class citizens who had a lot of involvement within local politics. Now these first three categories, the honorable people in society were actually basically 2% of Philippian culture. You know, like we talk about the 1% for that culture to be in a place of honor, um, you were basically in the top 2%. Then you had um, a whole different group of people that were not honorable in the society. You had Roman citizens who basically had rights and privileges. Uh, so if you lived in Rome, you could vote, you, you know, you had some certain rights and privileges in, in the empire. You had freemans who were like a step down. They didn't have as many rights or privileges as a, as a Roman citizen. It was, it was decent, but you still kind of feel like an inferior citizen, especially compared to the honorable ones in society. And then, of course, in this culture at the bottom, you have slaves. The, we're known as the lowest of the low. Um, histor some historians use this term that was in their culture that would kind of peg these folk as mediocre people. They had very few rights, no justice, no fair trial. And what's fascinating is they could be really the only ones in Roman culture that could be crucified, which is crazy as the Jesus story to think that this is the way in which Jesus walked, this is the road he took. Basically, in that day, this was the category of people that would have been crucified. Why does this matter? You're like, dude, dude, I avoided the beach. I came here. You're talking to me about Philippian history. Well, if you get in your mind that this is the most status-obsessed city in the ancient world at the time, you begin to see how subversive and weighty what Paul is writing to this community. It's just, it's mind-bending. It's upside down. Nobody, no teacher, rabbi, whoever in this culture would ever write something like this to a community of people. You were trying to climb the ladder, and you get this picture that Paul calls to the church to live in a different way, to be like-minded, to have the same love for one another, to be unified, to be of one spirit and one mind, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, to be humble and actually value others before yourself. And the ultimate call is to look, this is nuts, to look out for the interests of others above yourself. This is nuts when you read this stuff. This is completely upside down to the world in which we know at this time. And then it goes even one step farther. So what Paul does is he puts on display Jesus as the great example. What we're going to read here in Philippians 2, the next little portion here, and then we're going to come to the table, was probably not written by Paul, though it's in Philippians 2. What he's doing is he's actually quoting an ancient poem. Probably This is actually probably the earliest thing ever written about Jesus in Philippians 2 here. 
And most scholars think it's actually a hymn that the church would sing together, like kind of the first hymn that they would sing. Now, I am not going to sing it, and you're all very, very happy about that. But listen, listen to what Paul does in how he connects the work of Jesus. So you're to do all these things, and then ultimately he talks about Jesus as the one. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, Remember, this is a hymn. Did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You want to know how to live? Live like Jesus. And this is what he did. And this is actually what we do as the Jesus community. This is like actually the very thing that forms our worship, our songs, our hymns. Jesus is the one who placed himself under humanity and gave of himself. It's a way different way in which obviously Rome wanted to roll and it's a beautiful picture for us of the kind of life that God is calling us into. One that actually breaks down, I would say breaks down, systems of power. The church is this crazy, subversive, upside-down place where we live in a way that's different. And the church is ultimately a community that participates as a community of goodness. I would call it like a guy named Scott McKnight, he calls it a Tove community, and I agree, that God has called us to be good. It's fascinating to me how people um, get scared of that word, good, as though somehow we think that like, we're trying to, like, on our own, do everything on our own. I think we can actually come from a posture that says, okay, like, we know we're broken, but we know in light of what Jesus has done that we can be a community of goodness. Now, to close, we don't have time for this. We're going to unpack this a little bit more, but in his book, um, Scott McKnight talks about the circle of Tove. I actually threw it in the, in the slides there. And he just talks about how one of the things the church should be doing is nurturing habits of goodness. And this is what we want to do. We're not perfect. I'm broken. You're broken. When people broken, people get together. Obviously, we just got to be real about that. Things happen. But what if we could collectively as a community just say, listen, we want to nurture in our community as we regather, as people we just believe over the next number of months are going to rejoin in after this pandemic. He talks about nurturing empathy and resisting a narcissistic culture whether that's narcissistic, narcissistic leaders, but I was also talking to a friend this week, it's often narcissistic churches at times that can create narcissistic leaders if we're not careful. The, communities, the church is called to be a place that nurtures grace, where we resist a culture of fear. This is the thing I notice with a lot of people that maybe have wounds from church experiences or whatever is um, they saw a community that was a place of fear. We resist a culture of fear in our community. He talks about putting people first. This is, uh, this is beautiful. This is the best because one of the things we've been saying over and over, and we even said it in that little interview there, is we just, we obviously, there's things that happen in the church. There's things that need to get done, but this is about people first. People are not a commodity to get, get us somewhere to an end goal. Jesus is the end goal. Life with God is the end goal. And one of the things that we want to do is 
resist institutional creep that would put the institution ahead of people. We're here as a community under the rule of God for people. He talks about the church cultivating habits of goodness and one of them is just telling the truth. Resisting fake narratives. And we're not just talking about like, you know, what we've seen in the election cycle in the United States. We're talking about things that happen in the community. You know, oftentimes communities and organizations get themselves in trouble because they don't tell the truth. We want to create a place of authenticity and, you know, we're trying to do this in everything that we do. He talks about being a community that nurtures justice, that we resist the loyalty culture. And what he means by that is resisting ultimate loyalty to a particular type of leader. Um, You know, it's good to be loyal to one another, but when abuses or abuses of power happen, we want to be a community that nurtures justice. He talks sixthly about nurturing service, that one of the things we want to do is resist celebrity culture. And we've really got to push against this, especially in our moment right now, of creating a safe place and leveling the playing ground. Certainly there are leaders within the church community, but creating and cultivating a community where everybody is welcome and we're nurturing service. So one of the things you'll see, and even right now, is we have slowly, and I don't say this to toot our horn, but we are slowly like taking baby steps to get back into gathering. And um, you know, we're obviously many of you will jump on to help serve over the next number of months. But one of the things Heather and I, always want to model before us is there is nothing below us in this community as far as service. We want to nurture a service-like community for all of us. And finally, he talks as we nurture habits of goodness that we nurture Christ-likeness, that we resist what he would call the obsession in, in the North American context of leadership culture. And this has been fascinating the last couple of decades, how in the church, the church at times has taken a very um, worldly posture, posture at times when it comes to leadership. And again, we need leaders. But one of the things I think we're in the wake of as I talk about some of the things that we've seen implode over the last number of years in local churches is an obsession with leadership instead of an obsession with followership, followership. One of the things we should focus on the most, it takes leaders to run a community, 100%. But one of us, all of us have to lean into the fact that we are all called to be followers. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Mathetes is the word, a learner, a follower of the king. You with me? You out there? This, these are things that I just find sometimes a lot of churches are not talking about and we just want to put before us as a community that wants to build health and wholeness and it takes owning our past and moving into the future and ultimately it takes participating as a community that's good. So as we open up our Bibles and as you read the letters that Paul gives to the church communities, let, let us be reminded, brothers and sisters, that we are called into goodness, to loving, to service, and to creating a place and space. And I, our hope is that everybody would join in with us in this, in creating an environment here of healing. And I don't know where you come from on um, your own experiences, but As we move forward, one of the things we want to do is create a safe place. And so we're just going to invite you to join in with us in this. And we'll take some time at the end of August to revisit this. But as we talk about our moment, this could be be one of the biggest things that we need to tackle in the here and now.